So open your Bibles if you've got them or your Androids or your tablets or your scrolls, whatever you use these days, to Luke chapter 23. And, uh, and so we're going to just, it'll be on the screens as well, but this is where we're going to be just exploring Jesus' words here from, from the cross. It says, There's two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. There was written, uh, a written notice above him which read this, the king, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amazing statement from the cross. I don't know if you've had the experience of being with somebody when they die. Um, I've only had that once in my life. I've, I've, um, as a pastor, I've taken countless funerals and, and seen um, many people in a deceased state. But I've only been with one person when they passed away. And that was my great auntie Kath, my, um, my mother's auntie. And uh, she, um, she was not a Christian, uh, and she was not the nicest person in the world. I'm trying to work out how to say this in such a way that honours her memory, and, you know, we're filming these things now, and so I'm like, but, you know, she wasn't the easiest, aunt. like, I wasn't running to Great Auntie Kath's house to hang out for the sweet vibes at her place, because it was just edgy and, and, and she had had a hard life and, and, and she was bitter and, you know. And my mum was a saint though. My mum visited her every single week and had just a cup of tea with Auntie Kath, great Auntie Kath, and she just, amazing, just so servant-hearted. Even, I mean, she wasn't running there either, but she was just wanted to look after her great auntie and to love her So she, every week. These are the stories that no one, right, no one's blogging about this or writing books about this or this isn't. This is the real Christian life where mum would just go and love Auntie Kath every week. And as she got a bit older and a bit more frail, she would, do, she would up that and she just would visit her and visit her. And... Um, but she, my, my great auntie Kath just tried to do everything she could to make life tricky in our family. Like, you know, she just would, she was very into trying to divide and conquer and all this sort of stuff and rumours and have you heard about this and ooh, you know. And, um, and she picked on mum a lot, which wasn't fair because mum was the one actually doing the most in our family to look after her and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I, that's all I'll say about that. But... Um, but anyway, we get the phone call that she had um, been taken into hospital and that, and the doctors said, we, we think she'll probably die. And so we all jumped in the car and drove into Wellington Hospital from the Kapiti Coast and gathered around great auntie Kath. Now, this is probably not that common. Um, people like Andrew Gurman would, would know more than me, but my, my auntie was lucid up to the last um, probably 10 minutes of her life. And so um, people were talking with her, and my mum, so she's a nurse uh, as, as well, but very compassionate with her, and she said, you know, great Auntie Kath, do you want to hop in your own 90, rather than just wearing the hospital stuff? And, oh, I'd love that. So she got up, and they put her in the 90. And, um, and then we just, we just told her how much we loved her in spite of all the tricky things. And she was surrounded by a family. And then my dad said to her, um, great Auntie Kath, you haven't given your life to Jesus, but in this moment, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And she said, yes, I would. 
And so my father led her to the Lord, and, that, and this was in the last 20 minutes of her life. And then she, um, she lost consciousness, and, and all her family, we just worshipped around her, so we're just singing worship songs. It was unbelievable. And then, get this, I can't make this up. This stuff's another level, right? So then my dad reads the 23rd Psalm, and he says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. For he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters, and he refreshes my soul. He, guide me along, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Uh, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In that moment, as he read that verse, she breathed her last breath. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house forever. I mean, can you get that? It was, it was incredible. There's great Auntie Kath. Now, out of everyone in our family who deserved to have a send-off like that, she'll be at the bottom of the list, if I'm honest. And there she is, surrounded by her, her family who have continued just to love her. And she gives her life to Jesus genuinely in that moment. The presence of God fills the room. We worship Him together in A and E, in one of those random little things they stick you in. Who knows what everyone else was thinking? And <laughs> so we're singing songs, and then she and she uh, and then as Dad says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, and he read the old school vision, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. <laughs> Last breath, and, and you prepare a table, and, and, and he's welcomed into the love of God. Unbelievable! <laughs> it was just it was so powerful, you know. And um, I just was, it was such a privilege to be there. And the question that, that, that everyone is facing, and I hope this, this awakens some people what's going on in the world right now, is the question, what happens when you die? Like, what happens when you die? Uh, it's, a, it's a question that it's good to look at when we're just not too emotionally overwhelmed. Because most of the time we're thinking about that question when we're faced with death in some way, shape, or form in our own lives and interrupts us and, and we're emotionally overwhelmed and we wrestle with those big questions, what happens when you die? So it's good as we prepare for Easter that we go, we're going to look at this question just in a relatively emotionally standard state, if that makes sense. Because our culture is actually interested in what, what happens when you die. There's a whole um, TV series called The Good Place. Um, and I haven't, well, I've tried to watch it. I watched like one episode and got a bit over it and just couldn't watch it. But, but it's classic because the idea, which people are going to have two ideas in our culture at the moment. Either if you're good, you get to go to the good place, which is what this kind of thing's saying. So, you know, I'm a good person. Yeah, I'll be pretty good. I'll be too, I'll get to go to the good place. Or people think that when you die, there's just nothing. Now there's other things, you know, people, some people think about reincarnation or and if you really explore that, it's a brutal philosophy in terms of what happens when you die. That's, it's horrific. It, it's not pleasant at all. Do a little bit more research into Buddhism if you want to, um, to get your head around that properly rather than the Buddhist kind of uh, way that a lot of our culture kind of gets. But there's, there's a big question. Um, and what we think about the afterlife really determines, about what happens when we die, determines really in lots of ways around how we live right now. Uh, the British, um, so there's a great book again by John Tyson called The Birth, Burden is Light, and he quotes this British philosopher, um, Alain de Botton, which is a very unfortunate um, name, uh, but he quotes him in this, and he says this, 
When a belief in an afterlife is dismissed as a childish and scientifically impossible opiate, the pressure to succeed and find fulfillment will inevitably be intensified by the awareness that one has only a single and frighteningly fleeting opportunity to do so. In such a context, earthly achievements can no longer be seen as an overture to what one may realise in another world. Rather, they are the sum total of all that one will ever amount to. Right? So that's why in our culture you've got this thing of FOMO. Who's heard of FOMO? Some of our younger guys will hashtag FOMO, know all that. Um, you know, fear of missing out. Because it's like there's so much pressure to make this life count that, that if I miss out on anything, ah, oh, this is terrible. A lot of our introverts in the room uh, experience JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. So hallelujah, <laughs> you go out, Jen, have a great time. I'm just joyfully going to sit here quietly in my room. But it stems from... YOLO, hashtag YOLO, you only live once. So I was like, I'm going to try and get as much as I can out of this life because YOLO, YOLO, yeah, I'm going to throw myself in the bridge because YOLO. And it's like the Christian worldview is YOLT, hallelujah. You only live twice. Hallelujah, YOLT, hashtag YOLT. We've got to get that trending on somewhere on Twitter or something. It's like we can take the pressure off our life now because we have this great hope for the future. And genuinely, this impacts how I live week to week, day to day, because I'm like, if, if this life is all I've got, then every swell I miss, I've missed forever. But if I lived, only live twice, and one day the Lord is going to renew heaven and the earth, this is where the Christian theology gets really excited. If, he's going to, if there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, Going, it's, a, it's a, the garden reimagined, and I'm going to be on this physical earth, then I've got swell after swell after swell after swell, baby, that I can look forward to in the age to come. Come on, Aaron. Someone give me an amen. Come on. The fishing. I mean, try and get your head around this. The Bay of Islands is nothing compared to what God's original intent was. I'm like, can you imagine the, fish, the fishing or the diving? I mean, it's going to be incredible. And this is why the Lord invites us to activate our imaginations because this is the great hope that we have. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So what happens when we die? Susie Silk, in an outstanding sermon that I'm drawing from heavily uh, on the subject, she says this, Jesus does not want us to go through life uncertain about our future or fearful of death. Even when facing his own imminent death, Jesus sought to give assurance, hope, and clarity to the thief beside him. So beautiful in this moment. I mean, Jesus, every statement so far is an incredibly selfless statement that Jesus has made. Unbelievably selfless. You're going to hear from Charlotte next week around his care for his mother from the cross. Stunning. And so far, he's forgiven the people that have put him on that cross. And the second statement we're exploring is his concern for this criminal hung next to him who, who uh, is reassured about what's going to happen when he dies and he's facing his imminent death. The imagery, however, and it's, it's quite intentional, is that we have the choice around which criminal we choose to be. Do we want to be the criminal that, uh, that mocks Jesus? Now, that many people in our culture are the criminals that mock Jesus, not because they're, they're verbally mocking him necessarily, but because in the way they choose to live their life says, I do not need you. I'm sweet on my own. Then there's this criminal on the other side that's like, I need you, Jesus. I need you. Fleming Rutledge explains it like this. We are invited to see ourselves in these two malefactors. 
which I had to get all these guys with their big words, a naughty person is, uh, is another way of saying that. Luke, you can use that in the English class this week. There are aspects of both of us, um, in, of us in both of them, first one and then the other. Listen to this. We are like the one on the left. We say, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us too while you're at it. Like this thief, we do not see any sign of Jesus' power in this crucifixion. How could the Son of God allow himself to be caught in this horrible situation? Most of us would not want to be connected to anything so shameful. For us, the cross can be a very ambiguous sign, sign of weakness, ugliness, failure, incomprehension. Let us frankly acknowledge that we do not entirely like the cross. But what was it that the second malefactor or naughty person saw in Jesus? Picture it for a moment. We have before us, on three crosses, three men in the same ghastly predicament with nothing to distinguish one from the other except the mocking placard above Jesus' head that said the King of the Jews. What did the second man see in the dying, tortured face? What sort of kingship did he glimpse there? Did he perhaps hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them? What do you see in the crucified figure before you? What do you see? So this criminal uh, doesn't see, doesn't think that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that mocks him, and he joins in the crowd mocking. You heard last week that this was a way to amplify the pain uh, and to just heap abuse on that poor person being crucified. And perhaps um, the criminal's grateful that he's not the target of that mocking and abuse, and so I'm going to join in with the crowd just to keep the focus over here. But for whatever reason it is, he, he mocks him. And the other criminal rebukes him and says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The, the criminal says a number of statements that are actually very deep. And uh, this is why Jesus recognizes that he's, he's done something actually quite deep here and, and, uh, and extends that mercy and forgiveness and invites him into, into paradise. Um, Arthur Pink in his commentary on this uh, passage points out uh, what's happening here. Firstly, he acknowledges that there is a future life that will include judgment. He says to the criminal, don't you fear God? Secondly, he recognizes his own sin. He's like, we have been punished and we deserve it. And then he also recognizes that Jesus doesn't deserve it, that Jesus is the innocent one. And the third thing is he says, remember we, when you come into your kingdom. He is recognizing that Jesus is God that he can make the call about who is in the kingdom. It's a huge declaration of faith, even though it is at the last minute. Now, when you look at this criminal, and when you look at great Auntie Kath, it's not fear. It's not fear. It's like, this is the last second. Now, some of you guys may have done this. I did this as a teenager when I was like looking at all the fun things I could be doing if I wasn't following Jesus. I, I entertained the thought, well, why don't I just give my life to Jesus at the last minute and have a lot of fun between now and that moment? Anyone else had that naughty thought, right? And then there's terrible theology, but we've all gone there where it's like, it doesn't seem fair because it's like, well, what's going on here? Great Auntie Kath, the criminal, like last second, you know, they get, they get the whole curtain caboodle. They get to welcome them to paradise. This is just unbelievable. Now, we've got to sort out some theology here, but you, you, let's get this clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 to 9, 8, verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. There's no clearer moment that we see this outworked than on the cross in this moment. 
Like when it comes to salvation, we don't deserve it, but He gives it to us. It's not because you've been a good person. It's because He's a great God who loves seeing His children come home. Now that criminal has a massive declaration of faith, acknowledged he was sinful, acknowledged Jesus was the innocent one, acknowledged His sovereignty, acknowledged it was His kingdom. So there's some important steps we've got to take. And I've said this a few times. We've got to eat the humble pie if we were to come back into relationship with the God that loves us and created us. We have to acknowledge, I've got to come to the table. I'm a, I'm a sinner in need of His mercy and grace, but He loves giving it. He doesn't, it's not like, oh, I have to. It's like, yes, here's this criminal that in that last moment makes these, and it's a yes, welcome into paradise. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. What a promise. Firstly, Jesus says, today, and this might, today you're going to be with me in paradise. This criminal is imminently going to die, and Jesus is like, it's happening today. Uh, when you die, you will be with Jesus in that moment. Uh, what an incredible, uh, I need to tell a story quickly, but um, our friends, I've said this before, I'm going to repeat it again, one of these crazy stories, but uh, our friends in Christchurch, Catherine Hannon, friends of ours, so this isn't like I've heard through the grapevine, this is friends of ours, um, Catherine Hannon's husband died of cancer. Uh, uh, probably 10 plus years ago now. Uh, uh, it's a long time ago, but died of cancer tragically, young uh, father, and, um, and he was, like any, any one of us, nervous and fearful about what it was going to be like when he died. So he goes to our senior pastor in Christchurch, and, and they're having this heart-to-heart. He says, I'm fearful about what's going to happen. Dave says to him, when you die, this is what it's going to be like. Now, I don't know how Dave knew all this, but Dave's senior pastor just kind of like, here's what happens. He says, when you, it's like when you fall asleep in the car when you're a kid. You fall asleep in your car seat, and then you wake up, and you're in your bedroom. And he's like, that's what it's going to be like when you die. You'll fall asleep, and then you'll wake up, and it's like you've woken up in another room. And this gave great comfort to Catherine's husband. He dies. Uh, tragically, young family, horrific situation. And Catherine's dealing with the grief of all of this. A number of months later, she has a very vivid dream. Now, just, just so you know, Catherine wasn't aware that David had had, our senior pastor had had that conversation with her husband, okay? She has a very vivid dream where her husband uh, rings her up on the telephone, and she picks up the telephone, it's her husband. And, uh, and he says in this dream, I'm not, this will be the only time this happens, but, um, but, the, but I've, the Lord's let me just have a quick chat. <laughs> And, and she said, in her, this dream, it's a dream, she, they talk about you know, a few random things and a few bits and bobs, and, and it was just really vivid. And then, in this dream, uh, he says to Catherine on the phone, oh, by the way, tell David it was exactly like he said. And, and, so then, and then she wakes up, and then she, so she can remember this dream vividly, and he said, this isn't going to happen again, this is one-off, but this is just to reassure you that I'm, I'm with the Lord. And so then, so Catherine's like buzzing out. And then so she goes to David and says, our senior pastor says, he said this random line on this phone call. It was exactly like you said. What did you say? Which is when David explains what he'd said to her husband. How, now this is not removed. This is firsthand story I've heard, okay? That's, that's so reassuring, right? It's what the Lord's doing on the cross to this criminal today. You'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise. Jesus chooses a very specific word here. What does that mean? The Jewish word has its roots actually in a Persian word. When the Jewish people went into exile, they found this Persian word which meant an enclosed garden or park of a king. 
an enclosed garden or park of a king. So when they began writing the scriptures, when they talked about the Garden of Eden and it became in their vocabulary, they would use this word paradise, which meant it was like an enclosed garden or like the park of a king. So this is the word that they were used. And so throughout the Bible, you'll see this metaphor of a garden. Uh, in, uh, in Genesis 1, you have this picture of the garden. The tabernacles, as they got built, were meant to reflect the Garden of Eden, perfection, paradise, when the Lord and, and humanity just dwelt together in perfect union. And so the, uh, the Old Testament tabernacle had all this fruit and all this decoration that would echo, bring echoes back to uh, the Garden of Eden. And so uh, 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 Adam and Eve, they, they can see God in this, in this place and they're intimate with Him and they can eat from the tree of life, which means that they just continually live in glory with Him. But they also, um, they also choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil and they choose to rebel against God. And interestingly, God in his mercy says, you need to leave the garden. Why? Because if they leave the garden, it means they can't eat from the tree of life anymore, which means they don't have to go through eternity separated from God. Interesting, eh? It's mercy. It's mercy. And he, just from that moment, he begins to pursue his people again. And so in Genesis 3 verse 24, it says, After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So when Jesus dies on the cross and says, you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus is saying, I can make a way for you to come back to the garden. I can make a way for you to come back to that place of paradise. The cross of Jesus is the great reversal. Listen to this. Adam, this is from Rich um, uh, Villados. Villados? Vill, Villados. He's, Jesus, uh, what have I got here? Adam and Eve hide behind a tree naked and covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree and conquers shame. The cross of Jesus is this great reversal. This is why as we come to this morning to the table, as we finish our sermon shortly, um, we, are, we, are, we say in our liturgy, this is the tree of life rediscovered. This is the tree of life rediscovered. The Eucharist, the communion table, is the fruit from that tree. This is the significance. We can go back to the garden. Hallelujah. Adam, Adam Hamilton, in his commentary on this final, in his book, from uh, Final Words from the Cross, says this. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, was cru- crucified in a garden at Calvary, and was buried in a garden next to Calvary. John tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene saw him and thought he was the gardener. This is important. What I believe John was saying and what I believe Luke is hinting at at these words of Jesus spoken to a dying criminal is that Jesus was opening the door to the king's garden once more. Through his suffering, death and resurrection, Jesus was removing the curse that he had banished Uh, that had banished humankind from the garden, from paradise, and he was inviting us to return to paradise with him. And the first person he invited to join him in paradise was a hardened criminal, a thief on the cross. How cool is that? Don't you love Jesus? Like the first person, not who you think. He's just always doing that, eh? And so I pray that this morning you'll be filled with hope. I loved, you know, Joe's testimony from last week as she met Jesus. Fear of death just got healed in her life. And I pray it would move from fear to, to hope and longing and excitement about what, will be, uh, what it will be like one day, that your imagination would just run riot 
really. Uh, I was at a young adults gathering in Christchurch when we had a young, large young adults ministry there, and we're doing a, a, a night um, on um, what happens when you die. It must have been anyway. And one of the questions that got asked, because we had a and a panel, was, will there be sex in heaven? And now clearly for the young adult, the, the supreme <laughs> pursuit as a young Christian, young adult, was, will there be sex in heaven? Like, because, very concerned, because Jesus, when he talked to the Sadducees, says there isn't going to be marriage in the age to come. Uh, and so, you know, this is just tragic news for the young adult. <laughs> what if they die a virgin, you know? And it's like, this is just horrific. And it's classic, you know, and good on them for asking the question, because it was like, you know, it's probably what everyone was thinking as young adult Christians in the room, you know? And, but, you know, the, the, the reason I'm asking this question is like, Will it be as good as the best moment here on earth? As far as I can see, sex is the ultimate sort of pinnacle of pleasure or whatever, and, and it's great. Like, don't get me wrong, it was super awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, skating on some weird ice, not thin ice, just really weird ice. Keep <laughs> moving. Is it going to be? It's going to be better than anything you can imagine. It's going to be better than anything you could imagine. Like, it, now, C.S. Lewis explained it like this in The Weight of Glory. Now, C.S. Lewis, is another quote that's like, crikey, mate, calm down with your whole, ooh, little my fancy English words. But it's like, let me, I'll read it, then we'll, we'll, re, we'll re-say it in Hawke's Bay language, okay? But is it going to be any good? Listen to this. At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the spirit in us lives directly on God, but the mind and still more the body receives life from him at a thousand removes through our ancestors, through our food, through our element, through the elements. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even and thus filtered, they had too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead of that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. So what he's saying there is like, you know how we just love a good, good steak? Oh, man, hallelujah. Just a good steak, a good Burger King number three double bacon cheeseburger combo. <laughs> just incredible. Or, you know, you have a, some of you guys are a connoisseurs with wine, and it's like you have a nice glass of wine, and it's like, oh, that's just heaven. It's just incredible. Or whatever it is that brings you pleasure in your life, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that those pleasures are so diluted and so far removed from the source, and even them, they at times can be overwhelming for us, and they can. It can be overwhelming sometimes that the, the beauty and the goodness and, the, and just the, 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 the grace of God revealed through food and nature and, and, and good waves and good friends. And C.S. Lewis, Lewis, I love this line. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead of that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Just this, what a great line. Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Like everything that you think is beautiful in this is just diluted compared to the glory that is to come. And that's why Jesus used the word paradise. Paradise. It's the Christian hope. Now let's get really clear about the Christian hope because the church has really got focused on uh, life after death as being this, the only hope. 
has been the main thing we've talked about. We've gone out there with our little, well, maybe not you guys, we've gone out with our things, you know, John 3.16 and don't you die and all the rest of it. You know where you're going when you die. And like, it's an important subject, but it is only one that Jesus addresses just a few times. And one of these being at this time on the cross. Next slide, Cass. But uh, so here we go. So we've got the one that we've looked at today, which is paradise after death. The Christian hope is that when you die, you will be with the Lord. And it's a beautiful promise and I don't want to minimize it, but there's even more to be said about the Christian hope. The second thing, Cass, can you help me out here, is life in the present. Jesus' predominant teaching was that that heavenly life would break into the present now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in paradise. Lord, break it in. I don't want to have just love, joy, and peace in all of its fullness one day when I die. I want to live and experience it now. I don't want my character to be I want to become more godly and therefore life a lot more peaceful and less stressful. <laughs> you know, and so with the criminal and with great Auntie Kath, God's mercy, he, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But I can tell you right now that criminal and my great Auntie Kath missed out on the life of God in this life now. So this is the great Christian hope that we have. And then the last thing is a renewed heaven, a renewed earth, and resurrected bodies. This is the supreme Christian hope that the church has largely ignored in terms of teaching. And we've got all, you know, even when I preach about it, I'm like, this is 101 Christianity. This is in the creeds, the resurrection of the body. This is the huge focus of the epistles. And yet we've seemed to kind of lost it in our kind of imagination. Revelation 21, 22 says that there'll be a new garden, this time in the form of a city. This paradise will come back to the very earth that God created and he will renew this very earth. And the saints will rise in resurrection to be with him with the physical body. And Jesus' body, the epistles say, is the first fruits of that resurrection. He's the first fruit. So it's not a body like an earthly body. And 1 Corinthians 15 is this big exegesis of what this body's gonna be like. It's not animated physically, it's animated spiritually, but it's still a physical body. It's still Jesus bore the scars from his crucifixion, but he could also go through walls. How cool is that? I hope we get to pick at what era our body is resurrected. <laughs> I peaked in my 20s, man, and I'm like, I'm keen to pick that one if we can, God. I don't know what it's going to be like. Outwardly, we may be wasting away. Inwardly, now we're being renewed day by day, but the great hope that we have is that one day we'll be resurrected and we'll go surfing and go fishing. Work was part of the pre-fall creation. We'll be doing stuff and creating and partnering with God to steward this beautiful world. It's, I don't, we, the the N.T. Wright, who's written some of the best stuff on this, particularly his book, Surprised by Hope, he says there's not huge detail in the, the uh, Bible, but it's like a signpost into the mist. We know where we're going. We just don't know how it's all going to look. But that's the great Christian hope. So I've got to say that today as we talk about this paradise thing, because I'm like, hallelujah, I can't wait to be with him. But one day, so, so it's like there's life after, life after death. That makes sense? So after we die, we get to be with the Lord and our spirit goes to be with him and our body gets turned to ash or gets turned into earth or whatever it may be. And then one day there's life after, life after death with the resurrected bodies and all the rest of it. And that's why often in the apostles, they talk about going to sleep. The body's gone to sleep. The soul is with Jesus. And then one day it awakes again. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I'm looking forward to it. And it makes sense and it's filled me with hope and it totally changes the way that I live today. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Though, therefore, we do not, I've quoted this already, but let me say it again. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed by day, day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but at what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So I'd like to invite you today to come to the table. And uh, if we want to get ready, guys, we will come to the cross in response to this. Uh, we will come to the tree of life, rediscovered, and we will come and eat the fruit from that tree, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed. And so just so everyone knows, uh, uh, the, it's just grape juice, if, um, if you're wondering. And is it gluten-free bread still? It is, all right, there we go. We really got to pray that God redeems that one day and we all can drink, eat normal bread. But that's, uh, in the meantime, in this fallen world, gluten for everyone, gluten free for everyone. What I would love to do as we, um, as we pray, as we finish, a couple of things. Firstly, if, if, just, if you are feeling a bit anxious about everything that's going on with the COVID stuff, you don't have to come up to the table. Our guys prepared this with gloves and it's individual things, but still the bread's kind of mundled together and all the rest of it. So if you don't feel comfortable, no dramas, um, just feel free to spend some time with the Lord in the midst of it. Oh, we've got some hand sanitizer there, if you want. Um, but here's what I'd like to do. We're going to do this at the end of our sermons for the next little while. And uh, in a second, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite you to come to the table. For most of you, I'd like you just to come take the elements and just thank God for the great hope that we have in him. And, that, and just take a moment and say, Holy Spirit, fill me and activate my imagination about the great hope that I have about what happens when I die. And just set my soul at ease. This is what it's going to be like. It's going to be okay. Uh, but if that's you, then just go back to your chairs and, um, and take communion, spend time with the Lord. But if I would love to pray for you, and we've got guys who would love to pray for you. If there's anything happening in your life, unrelated to the COVID thing, related to it, anything that's happening in your life that you're like, I'm, I'm battling right now, we'd love just to minister and pray for you. So if you want to take your communion, come here and we'll just love to pray for you. And particularly, I just felt as I've been preparing today that when Joe spoke last week about that fear of death, that's something that you've wrestled with and you've struggled with. We'd just love to minister to you and just pray that God would just fill you with an assurance by his spirit. This is not something we do, it's something he does, an assurance that yes, those words are true. And you can rest in that. Uh, or if there's um, a sense of just struggling right now and you just want fresh hope, you want to lift your gaze from these light and momentary troubles, as the scripture saying, like, I want a vision of eternity. And we'd love just to pray for you that God will give you that. Does that make sense? Is that all good? Let's stand together. The table has been prepared this morning, not of the church, but that of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's made ready for those who love the Lord a little and those who would like to love him more. All are invited to take a seat at this table, the certain, the uncertain, the faithful and the doubters. So I invite you to come this morning, those of you who have much faith and those of you who have little. I invite you to come, those of you who have followed faithfully and those of you who have tried and failed this week. I want you to know that there is always a space for you at this table, not because of your own goodness, but because of the goodness of God. So I invite you to come this morning and meet the risen Christ. I invite you to come and eat from the tree of life rediscovered. Open your heart to Jesus and receive the salvation of God. For Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So come this morning to where heaven and earth overlap. 
to the table of the Lord and receive the life of Christ as your own. In Jesus' name, amen.